1: Show my name is Ryan Bailey and on this episode we're looking at the first round of Champions League semi-finals and a few CONCACAF Champions League games and the quarterfinal stage to boot. Joining me to do so is a man who's so nice and so lovely he would always allow Riyad Mahrez to take a free kick if he asked nicely, Taylor Rockwell. Yeah I
2: mean if he asked nicely that's what you have to do it's what chivalry requires. Yeah but I mean what if
1: you were the better free kick taker what if you were Kevin De Bruyne? Oh
2: in that case never mind chivalry is dead.
1: <laughs> okay i retract I'm my sure. previous introduction in that case well uh, joining the formerly chivalrous taylor and i is a man who is to american soccer what christian politic is
3: to american soccer
1: a runaway <laughs> success joe lowry
3: that is the highest compliment I-, I would have had significantly less success scoring the goal that he did uh, the other day but i'm gonna take that ryan thank you
1: well he was given an awful lot of time on the ball so maybe you'd have had a better chance than you thought so maybe we can get <laughs> onto that a little later joe
3: Maybe. I don't think you've seen me play soccer, have you, Ryan? I haven't. I'd like to. (laughs) Do you play play regularly? Not as often as I'd like to, especially not now. But even when Hmm. I do play regularly, uh, the the touch leaves something to be desired. We'll just put it that way. He's hustling you, Ryan. He's
2: hustling you. I've played with Joe. Joe is one of those, like, oh, I'm not that good. But then is... Quietly competent, and then
3: quickly like, wait, where did that come from? How do you score that? Joe's jo- got some skills. Joe's got. That's some the biggest. In the back. That is the biggest compliment I have ever received. <laughs> I- I'm just gonna go now. This cannot get any better for me.
2: Quietly competent. At least I mean, that's
3: being a
1: politics compl- and also quietly competent. Those are two. Yeah, great compliments. I, I, I guess. guess.
3: I guess related to soccer. Yeah, it's those are pretty big I compliments. Think. Maybe <laughs> life wise, not so much.
1: Taylor has mentioned off-air on the subject of record league and and playing the game that he played four or five times a week. Like, how did you keep that up? Like, That's a lot of games per year. I mean, barely, I think is my answer.
2: I was definitely (laughs) reaching the point. That was before quarantine. I was definitely reaching the point where that was probably not sustainable especially two full games on sunday like two 90 minute games on sunday oh. yeah i'm not really i'm not I'm, and it's not like i'm particularly fit i am not ryan bailey who can run a marathon i could definitely watch ryan run
1: a marathon without getting out of breath i think i think i could do that i think you've got a problem if you playing playing that much <laughs> to be honest taylor you you just talk to someone I, I i mean you know it's just
2: it's what i got to do ryan it's it's the next one's right around the corner it's like fifa you can't stop you got to keep going you got to win it's how it works
1: you do indeed. You do it And tell you who else has got to win? Paris Saint-Germain. They've no, got to score it. at least two goals when <laughs> mm. they face Manchester City, uh, in their second leg of their semi-final, the first one taking place this very Wednesday. Uh, on the commentary on the, uh, on the US coverage, this was introduced as the hypermodern, modern hyper-powered, hyper-moneyed clubs, uh, which I thought was a uh, pretty liberal use of hyper there, but it was hyped <laughs> up, this game. And it, it did, uh, it was very entertaining in the end. I think, Joe, we'll call this, very much a game of two halves. One where one team was very good, and the other where the opposite thing happened.
3: Now that is some outstanding analysis, there, Ryan. I, I don't disagree <laughs> though. That's the thing. So I get a big bucks. I, I don't. I don't disagree with that general premise surrounding this game. In the first half, PSG were better. They were the better team in that opening forty-five minutes. In the second half, that wasn't the case. Now I don't think. Even though Man City scored those two goals in the second half, I don't think City was as good in the second half as PSG was in the first half. It's a little complicated, but but hopefully that, that translated to audio. But I, I do think that general narrative for the game holds true. PSG came out in that first 45. They held the ball a little bit more than I thought they were going to. They looked smooth mm-hmm. in possession with Paredes a little bit deeper, Neymar dropping down, Marco Verratti back in this team for Champions League action. And then in the second half, that... Stopped and City controlled the game much more. They they used their four four two press a little bit more, won the ball higher up the field, and then actually started creating some opportunities for themselves to score goals. and And ultimately, that did make the difference in this game.
1: I should note by the way the score was 2-1 to Manchester City. I neglected to say that at the top. Mm. It was 1-0 at half time to Paris Saint-Germain and things flipped around very much in the second half. But Joe, you described there, um smooth, I think was the word you used for the way the PSG had the ball. And I, I very much agree with that. It was confidence. They were oozing confidence after City came out of the traps relatively quickly. They they settled down very well, I thought, PSG. Uh, you know, and one thing that stood out to me, I think, uh, Taylor, is that they were very organized at the back. That back four was very, very almost rigid to the, the, yep. the way they were holding it. And um, they looked very disciplined. And the way they were swarming players like Foden when he got on the ball in the final third, I thought was very, very impressive, which is all the more baffling for how that defense dealt with the second half.
2: Yeah, it reminded me. Here's the analogy I'll go with is like what you're supposed to do if a black bear ever charges you and you make yourself big and loud and then, like, don't run away. And I think PSG did a really good job of not running away and not running too. When Kevin De Bruyne, who was playing as the False Nine pretty frequently in this game, when he would drop deep, they very pointedly did not follow him. And you could see him a couple times, like, look to be like, don't you guys want to get me? Like, I'm open. Aren't you worried? And it did not happen. And I think when he would get the ball, then he would turn and have. At least one PSG defender closing him down really, really quickly, but it was always sort of before he could get up a full head of steam. To some extent, I think PSG took that page out of City's playbook, that throw a body at the person as they're in transition, and you're either going to win the ball, maybe you're going to foul them, or at the very least, you're going to make them adjust a little bit and slow down, and you can get everybody else back. Once you're back, don't bite, don't get pulled apart, and I think it's a big reason why City ended up getting kind of funneled out wide and didn't really have much else to do aside from that in that first half.
1: Oh, City love being funneled out wide. They do, they do. PSG rue the day they uh, they decided to do that, Taylor. I tell you what, <laughs> um, it, I, I was quite impressed with Neymar and Di Maria because they're very good players, but the coverage they had on the field. Maybe, maybe Joe, you can speak to this. It, it felt like Neymar was playing every position, at least in yeah. the first half. And, and Di Maria was all over the place as well. There was a moment I think I texted you boys about where he came back with the back four and, and made this sort of outstanding um, assist, which which was ruled out in the end for the um, for a chance for Mbappe, I think it was. But mm-hmm. they seem to have a lot more freedom than, say, the back line did.
3: It's so fluid for Mauricio Pochettino, and that is representative of a, a trend in soccer right now and a trend we'll talk about more with the CONCACAF Champions League game that we've got later on. But it's so fluid and there's lots of interchanging between the front four for PSG because Mbappe can play wide or he can play as a number 9. Neymar can play as a number 10 or he can play out wide. Di Maria can play almost anywhere across that band of three underneath that nine. And then Marco Verratti is kind of a wild card because we didn't see him in the last round for PSG in terms of the Champions League. So he's coming in and playing... On the left wing question mark, it's really just the left back for PSG overlapping and Verratti having freedom along with Neymar to pretty much go wherever he wants. And it works really well. It's it's challenging to harness that fluidity in a productive way. But in the first half, Pochettino and PSG they did that they had those players working together in harmony just like we did it was Draxler instead of Verratti but just like they did against Bayern Munich in the last round it's it's really impressive to watch and more than that it's fun to watch
1: and Joe as good as Neymar and Di Maria were Mbappe didn't have his finest outing what, what do you attribute that to
3: I was paying very close attention to Mbappe in this game because of what Taylor and I, you, you and I talked about yesterday on our mm-hmm. show, the American the American Weekend Review. I don't remember what I actually titled <laughs> that show. It's a work in progress, folks. It's a work in progress. But because of that matchup in this game where we thought it was going to be PSG sitting back and Mbappe really blazing out on the counter, and that was the pattern to an extent. But Man City pretty much eliminated Mbappe a lot, and I watched that matchup very closely between Mbappe and you know, Man City's back line in, in midfield, really. And City did a really, really good job of denying him space. The center backs would converge and head the ball away, or Ed- Ederson would come up and clear the ball or, or claim the ball, like on that moment you talked about, Ryan. Or yeah. the fullbacks would tuck inside and form a compact line of four, or maybe they'd have a little staggering in there. City paid attention to Mbappe very clearly in this game, and I, I saw the stat on Twitter from Opta tonight, this, this Wednesday, as we're recording. Was the first time that Kylian Mbappe completed 90 minutes in a UEFA Champions League match and failed to attempt a single shot. Credit to Man City for how they defended against him in this game.
1: Yeah, massive credit, uh, Taylor. What were your thoughts on the way PSG played, particularly maybe in the first half? I mean, we—I th- I think I saw you send a text about Florenzi, who I always enjoyed in his uh, mm-hmm. at Roma, and seems to be doing a bang-up job uh, for the most part for PSG as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it was Florenzi when he... uh, I think the one I was pointing out was the one where he gets the ball from Verratti. It's a great little, like, chipped ball over the top that completely sends the entirety of Manchester City, like, including the city itself, the wrong way. Uh, And then, like, uh, I think there's almost a chance from it. I think that's the Neymar penalty shout that wasn't really a penalty shout. But I think that was a moment of creative inspiration and creative freedom, which there certainly was from PSG's attack. But I thought what really just kept resonating for me was just the discipline from the first... Kick until the halftime whistle went. That PSG were always about getting into their shape, about slowing down what Man City wanted to do, and never really compromising that vision when it came to the attack. They would still commit numbers forward when the situation was on. They were certainly looking uh, regularly for if Mbappe was open, and oftentimes he was not. Uh, and I think that, but they had a variety to the attack that they did not have in that second half, and I think that also cost them on the day, but that first half is the the best I can remember them playing, and I had a moment where I was like, maybe it was Pochettino, maybe that's what it took, was one person who like, kind of hadn't been touched by past mishaps and past letdowns was coming in with this kind of rejuvenated plan, and this could be it, and I thought that's why Neymar looked so good. It seemed like he wanted to beat Pep, he wanted this to be an impact game and show PSG can actually go far, they can win this competition. It felt like that was going to go the way it was going to go in the first half, and then it certainly didn't in the second.
1: So things did go quite pear-shaped for Paris mm-hmm. Saint-Germain, as you say, in the second half. Uh, Joe, do we attribute that to Man City going up a few gears? They certainly seemed to press a little bit more in the second half. They certainly had a lot more about them. They are a bit less, maybe a bit less timid is, is the way i describe it. Or was it the fact that Poch maybe didn't do enough to, to shake things
3: up in the second half? Didn't make, maybe didn't have the options to make the changes necessary? I think this could be a classic case of things can be two things, or even things can be three things if we want to add an extra thing onto there. Man City in the second I, half I have they this did down Joe. <laughs> Do you really <laughs> I have that like exact same thing? Yeah, pretty much. Great mites, great mites. <laughs> I, I think in the second half we saw, and, and this isn't just me; this is statistically true as well. We saw Man City press more and win the ball mm-hmm. higher up more. Their PPDA, which is a stat that captures opponent passes allowed. ...per defensive action. So how much you're letting the other team pass the ball around... ...before you step in and do something as that defensive team. In the first half, City uh, City's PPDA was 12.63. So they allowed PSG 12 and change passes per defensive action. In the second half, it was 8.72. Almost four passes lower. That means City are pressing more often. They're engaging the ball more often defensively. In the second half as well, City won eight possessions in the attacking third... ...relative to only three in the first half. So City stepped higher up the field, won the ball more often... And that hurt PSG. Their their time on the ball went down. Their passes per possession went down. In that second half, they were sitting a little bit deeper and, and let City bring the game to them. And then you add in the whole Pachettino thing. Did he have the subs to change it? Did he need to change things? I don't I don't know. I don't know if you bring in, you know, Moises Keane off the bench or, or you bring in Pereira off the bench. I don't think that magically makes you a better passing team to get out of pressure. So maybe he he could have used more options on the bench from a, a roster standpoint, but I think this is a case of PSG struggling getting tired, losing steam in that second half. Man City really stepping things up and then, you know, getting fortunate on a couple of their goals. They're only two goals.
2: Yeah, Thank and I build on I build on what what Joe is saying there to add that like I, I really do think this is a case of Manchester City having a better second half, but PSG really being sort of the cause of their own demise in a couple different mm. ways, and I think it starts with in the second half, as Joe mentioned they dropped a lot deeper PSG and you would see Mbappe and yeah. Neymar come very deep almost like 30 yards from their own goal at times and as the commentator I forget who our lead commentator was he pointed out in the 52nd minute that they've basically dropped into a low block four-four-two, which is a thing that City are much more familiar with and I think what PSG were doing to disrupt and overload one side and Neymar would press on one side and then they'd attack the other but then sometimes they'd go down that side where Neymar had just popped up and now they have an advantage there and I think they kept starting these little fires that City had to try to figure out. But as soon as you're sort of essentially starting a fire that City have already put out many, many times in the league, they're going to have more confidence and more familiarity. They're going to get a little bit more time. They're start to going to start to gain that confidence. And I honestly think this is my own spin. I'm not trying to say this is actually what happened, but this is what I wouldn't be surprised if it happened, is that we know from past experience, especially in the Champions League, Potch changed th- changes things up. With Spurs, he would sometimes make a change in the 30th minute, then at halftime, then another one in the 60th minute. He didn't hesitate to change things if they weren't working. And I I do wonder if Pep Guardiola knew that and thought he might change things up because he thinks I'm going to change things up. And so he's trying to sort of checkmate me before I even make my moves. And I don't really think City changed that much, to be honest. I think they were a little more aggressive, but I think... PSG changed their game plan to be more defensive and invited Manchester City onto them. But if you look at it up until they get that equalizer, they're still not creating very good chances. They're not creating clear-cut chances, at least. And even that goal, it's a little bit of a fluke. But I think after that equalizer, that's where PSG really let
3: themselves down. Well, and I think it's so hard in soccer because PSG come into the second half, they're defending that one nothing lead. And it's the eternal soccer question. It's not really mm-hmm. eternal, but it's this big question. When you're defending a lead, especially in a knockout competition where away goals are so important, do you defend that lead literally and, and play deeper mm-hmm. in your own half? Or do you go out on the front foot? And whatever, whatever you choose if you lose that game or if you allow that away goal it's going to look like the wrong choice. I don't know if PSG made the right choice or the wrong choice. The result looks like they, you know, they messed that yeah. up and Pochettino should have had them stepping higher. But I don't know I don't know and this is not necessarily con- contradicting what you said Taylor, but I don't no, know fine. whether to blame PSG for sitting deeper or, you know, whether just to say, man, the luck didn't go their way in that second half. Well, let, let me refine it a little bit more then because that's
2: a fair point, Joe, and you're absolutely right that like damned if you do, damned if you don't. But right. I think the other thing that really hurt PSG in that second half was that they were still so focused on building out under pressure and it was almost as though they had trained on it the whole week and completely backed themselves to be able to handle the technical ability and precision of Man City's press and they did in the first half especially pass their way out and keep their cool but when you're doing that 15-20 yards further up the field it makes Mbappe that much more of a threat and they have to worry about him do Manchester City's defenders so maybe they're going to drop a little bit more and maybe other gaps are going to open up. But now if you're doing that from 10 yards from your own goal line, it requires Mbappe to drop all the way back. Otherwise, you're just looking long. And when they would do that, that pass is going to be cut out. And I thought that trying to build out under suffocating circumstances, but now with your team more stretched, it again kept leading to turnovers and half chances for City and possessions for Manchester City. And I think in that way, they sort of invite that pressure onto them repeatedly in the second
1: half without ever really being able to alleviate it or reduce it at all.
3: Yeah, that's fair.
1: Is there a school of thought with Poch in terms of his decision making what he did in the second half and the team sitting deeper, so on and so forth, that he did make the right calls, but this was and they could have, you know, sat this one out and held out, were it not for some fairly careless individual errors that led to the goals. Um, with you know with the with equalizer from Kendal Bruyne being a cross that goes straight in and they were very in, in, emphatic on the CBS coverage here that um, yeah they that were. someone should have headed it away at that point certainly Peter Schmeichel was he did not want to <laughs> he did not want to blame Navas <laughs> for that at all he was quite adamant about that if you watched the coverage after the game uh, and and the second one with that wall. Uh, which, uh, you know, they had the, the draft excluded a person lying on the floor to try and block. But it's, it's all well and well, good having that when you have a massive hole open up in the wall that Riyad Mahrez can find a way through. My, my, uh, my, here we go. I haven't seen a wall that expensive and vulnerable since the one that Trump put up on the southern border. There's my <laughs> political joke for the evening. You're very welcome. But... Um, I, what, what, I mean I, it had I, as I, many holes and gaps I think that's fair <laughs> exactly so I've got two questions there did Riyad Mahrez mean to find that hole or was he just was it mishit and it was going straight at the wall and do you buy into my theory that it was just a couple of careless errors and without those PSG would have been laughing and and would have set up correctly in that second half maybe I'll go to you first Joe
3: yeah, I totally buy into your theory. The the XG on this game, it's dangerous to draw too many conclusions from, from single game expected goals. But PSG had the edge in this game. The the two shots that Man City scored on, I think I looked at it at after the game and they totaled 0.02 XG between the two shots. So the odds of that happening were so low. And if those chances don't happen, they don't find the back of the net. We're talking about this game probably a little bit differently than we are right now. As far as whether or not Riyadh Mara is meant to find that gap, I'd, I'd wager probably not. It seems hard to bank on a, a massive hole opening up in <laughs> right. any wall at this level. But, uh, you'd have to ask him, right? I am, I am hmm. slightly curious. I think, you know, there was a conversation between De Bruyne
1: and Mares, where De Bruyne afterwards in an interview said, like, he, Mares asked him nicely if he could take it. I wanted, it was something like, and he said, he said to Mares, well, if you believe in yourself, you can take it. Or well, that's at least what he told the reporters, which sounds very idealistic. But <laughs> I, I wonder what that conversation was about. Was it Marez said, I'm going to hit it straight at the wall and see if something happens. What do you think, Kev? Should I give it a shot? <laughs> I don't know. I think what he one. said uh, was he quoted the
2: great Billy Zane, and he said, you make your own luck. Uh, that's right. A Titanic quote for you both, which I think is actually Thanks quoting Zane. Dwight Schrute. Quoting. Quoting. Titanic but either way (laughs) uh, I I think but like Ryan I do mean that sort of sincerely that no I don't think he was aiming for that I think it was a fortunate bounce and obviously the ball in is is pretty fortunate in the way it ends up I do not think Kevin De Bruyne meant that Uh, Mm. but I think there is this idea in my for me at least that you do you put yourself in advantageous positions to then get lucky and I think changes like bringing on Zinchenko and now you have a left-footed left-sided like fullback who can get forward and ping those balls in more readily and with more danger to them you're going to create some vulnerabilities you're going to make somebody have to come over to cover him and now that opens up other spaces and maybe if a player is then trying to close that space that's where a foul occurs that wouldn't have occurred in the first half and I think City just made smart little changes and adjustments that I think really did compound what PSG were trying to do and then, yeah, a few lucky bounces. And if you're PSG, I also think maybe it goes the opposite way of oh, we're cursed. This is just how are we going to concede that goal and a goal through the wall? And then this red card, you could kind of see how they started to get frustrated and it became yeah. the official's fault. Why aren't you giving a red card for that? Why is that being called? And as soon as you're blaming the official and saying this game is against us and we just can't get anything right, you're sort of admitting that you're not going to get anything right and the game isn't going to work out for you. And I think to some extent, Man City created some luck and I think PSG lost some in the second half.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair way of looking at it. It's it's interesting to look forward to the, to the next uh, to the next game between these two. As I say, PSG do need to score at least twice uh, to get something out of this one. Uh, we've got PSG who have their stories getting to this stage of the Champions League as do Manchester City. Who's going to bottle it hardest, I suppose, is the uh, question <laughs> for this next game. Um, I won't ask you, Joe. Don't worry. I won't ask you. I'm not going to ask you this week. Maybe I'll ask You're you too good to me. on the next game. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hey, Joe, yeah, like, what do you think the score is going to be?
3: Oh, you know, it'll <laughs> be... Which eight, minute's eight, what a goal's coming. No, that's that's betting information. I'll, I'll keep that to myself when I uh, when I uh, head to Vegas here. Uh, but Joe, mm. let me ask you this then really quickly. I,
2: I am of the opinion that if PSG did what they did in the first half, uh, in the first half of the second leg, but then also in the second half, and sort of create some confusion for Man City the way they did in the first 45 of this game I think that puts them in as good of a position as they can can be in because otherwise I think you're kind of playing into what city are familiar with so if you make it unpredictable I don't think they're capable of sitting back and absorbing pressure I think they're going to play the game that they play and so I think if you play 90 minutes of the game that worked instead of just 45 maybe you're able to get a result so that's how I could see PSG getting back into that one what do you make of that idea
3: no, I, I agree. And Ryan, to give you some credit here, you've you've conditioned me well. You've trained me well. Because this afternoon, I was thinking, <laughs> man, Ryan's gonna ask me that question. What am I gonna say? How am I gonna spin it so I don't really give him an answer, but I kind of do. And my answer to you, Ryan, if you had asked me that question, I guess actually answered your question, Taylor. <laughs> you didn't. And credit <laughs> to you for that. I appreciate it. I, I think PSG can totally get back in this game by playing how they did in that first half. And Taylor, I would I would tweak kind of how. How we think about it slightly or how I think about it maybe and, and say they, they do sit deep a little bit at times, but then they play this really free flowing, lovely soccer when they get the ball. It's either direct or it is a little bit more. You know, pass, pass, move, move. Yeah. We're going to build up. And so it's this really nice variety of things that they do. And I think they, they hit the combination right on the head in that first half of the different tactical elements in that game plan. They they nailed pretty much everything in that first half. And if they can come out and do that, and it's, it's a hard thing to do. But if they can do that for 60, 70, 80, 90 minutes in the second leg, there's no reason why PSG couldn't win this tie still.
1: I'll add one more note to this game, gents. Um, uh, Michael, Mitchell Backer at left back for PSG. He, 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 brings me, he brings a smile to my face whenever I hear his name because when my daughter and I play soccer in our living room, uh, she's five years old and um, she kicks the ball and she wants me to go further back. She goes back, backer, backer backer more backer so every time i hear backer it just makes me think of that which is delightful that's anyway, so good i don't know why i am told that story on a podcast but here we are man city won this game 2-1 uh, it's all to do for paris engine man in the second leg of this one when we come back after this short break real madrid versus chelsea
0: this episode is brought to you by michelo ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone?
1: Total Soccer Show, we are back. Real Madrid against Chelsea. This one finished even 1-1. Chelsea getting a vital away goal courtesy of Captain America, the other one, not Joe Lowry, uh, who got one in the Spanish reign. Uh, Chelsea were the better team here, Taylor. Uh, not the highest quality of play, I would argue, throughout this game, but uh, you know, maybe, maybe Chelsea could have come away with even more from this.
2: Yeah, I think they definitely could have. I think those first 15 minutes of many have pointed out could have put them up 3-0, maybe 4-0. And Mm -hmm. then this is a very different conversation we're having. I think they slow down a little bit as the cards start coming out and the weather gets worse. I think especially when Madrid are able to equalize. I think for both teams, there's a little bit of a sentiment of we would like to get something. We would like to get the full win here, but we're also not going to put ourselves in a position where a weird bounce because of a waterlogged pitch ends up costing us the entire thing thing so i think there was a little bit more caution especially in the second half but overall yeah i give the edge to chelsea i think that's fair
1: i think that's completely fair too yeah pretty impressive stuff as you say they came out quite aggressively in this one they seemed a lot more physical a bit more press about them than real madrid who didn't seem to have much press at all of course <laughs> um uh, yeah joe on, on the on our show notes here you have mentioned how that chelsea had a great game plan to expose real madrid's defensive
3: approach tell us more Oh, I would love to. I would love to tell you guys more. And and I think this is something that we saw a lot in the first half. The thing I'm about to talk about, the way that Chelsea approached breaking down Real Madrid in the final third. That was the biggest tactical thing I took out of this game. We saw a little bit of a tweak formation-wise from Thomas Tuchel in this game. It was a little bit more of a 3-5-2 with Mason Mount playing deeper in central midfield. But then in in possession, it would go back to that 3-4-3, you know, 3-2-5 with the wing backs pushing up. And Real Madrid, they were in a back three in this game as well. They had Militao Varane and then Nacho in their back three. And and so it was kind of a 3v3 in those central spaces with uh, Chelsea's front three against Real Madrid's back three. And the way that Zidane has this Real Madrid team defend is he has those center backs stay tight to the man in their zone. It's not quite man marking, but it's not quite zonal marking. It's this hybrid thing where you're responsible for stepping in certain moments. And when it's 3v3 in those areas and Timo Werner drops in or Mason Mount drops in or Christian Pulisic drops in, that means their their corresponding center back for Real Madrid is also going to step forward. They're going to follow those players. Tuchel and Chelsea and his staff had seen that clearly coming into this game because on, on Pulisic's goal and on other sequences in that first 15 minutes of this game, Chelsea were dropping in and then sending runners in behind. They were dropping in and sending runners in behind. On the goal, it's a slight movement from Timo Werner. It's not even a full drop. He just kind of shuffles to his right. Varane goes with him. Pulisic splits the gap then that's now wider because Varane has shifted a little bit to the side. Pulisic splits the gap between Varane and Nacho, guts on the ball, and then it's bad defending from Real Madrid after that. And a nice finish, to be fair, to Captain America number 1. But it's that, (laughs) that pattern of the center backs having to step forward and Chelsea stepping in behind and making those runs into space. It was a really well-devised tactical, tactical game plan from Tuchel and company, and it, it certainly paid off in this game.
2: Yeah, and Joe, I, I agree with you, and I, and I would add that I think a lot of the narrative has been sort of, why did Zidane try to mirror Chelsea's approach. They're the ones who have kind of done this more often. Why wouldn't you try to do your own thing? Michael Cox had a really good breakdown of that for uh, the Athletics. So too did managing Madrid. If you want to check out two different pieces about this game. Um, But I think what I noticed from this one was that it was a sort of more like nuanced game plan where Chelsea had very specific things they were trying to do. Whereas I think Madrid had a basic game plan and certainly some ways that they wanted to attack and build and defend. But the one that kept standing out to me was how often to your point, Joe, about the center backs having to step and sort of challenge in midfield or step out a little bit was that it was often After the fact, almost it was Militao, I think two or three times in the first 30 minutes has to just go lunging out and routinely misses or concedes a foul because he's not sure if he's supposed to track the player who's dropping or if he's supposed to stay and then challenge or stay back entirely. And those moments of indecision, I think, were the difference, at least in the first 15 to 20 minutes, as Chelsea were able to sort of find their rhythm, find their way into the game and keep doing what they wanted to do. I think that. Madrid get one back is 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 sort of fortunate. It is a little bit of a it's a set piece and it's Karim Benzema being very very good. But I thought mm-hmm. those little differences were what ch- set Chelsea up to go ahead, even if they weren't able to take some of those opportunities. And by they, I mean Timo Werner. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we'll get to him shortly. For me, there was, there were two factors in Chelsea's success in this game. It was, it was Jorginho and Kante sort of dominating midfield that Kroos, Casemiro and Modric were, were, were taken out of the game for extended periods because of Kante and Jorginho doing Kante and Jorginho things. And (laughs) once again, my theory, if Tony Kroos doesn't have a good game, then Real Madrid don't win. It holds true once again in this scenario. And the other factor I would say is what you guys are talking about there. It's that back three or, or sometimes back five that Real Madrid had. Chelsea just really find, really finding the trick to finding the space back there. And, you know, you could even look at the goal that Pulisic scored there where it was it was really weird if you watch that goal again. The pace, like the, the game just stops like um, we were talking about rec soccer earlier. It was like a rec soccer game, like where, you, where your guy at the back just stops and the ball stops dead and he's like, okay, where am I going to put this ball next? And that was <laughs> Rudiger putting the ball over the top to Pulisic where Real Madrid, as I said earlier, didn't really want to press very much and Pulisic had... No one interested in closing him down at that point, and he decides to go it, go it alone and, and gets a gets a great goal there. Um, one, by the way, Mika Richards on the coverage, he did make me laugh at halftime. He said that Pulisic looked up and didn't want to pass to Werner because he didn't believe in him. That was what Mika Richards said, uh, and so that was that did amuse me. If, if uh, Mika Richards is slightly editorializing that situation, perhaps, but for me, gents, that was the two things. It was it was finding that space at the back and controlling the midfield Joe tell me I'm a good boy
3: you you are a good boy
1: Ryan that was a little
3: bit weird but I'll go with it Tony Kroos is is the x-factor for 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 Real Madrid and you've been spot on about that Ryan all throughout maybe you've been saying this your whole life since you were born I don't know maybe Uh this was your first word first phrase whatever it is it's true though and it certainly was true in this game Chelsea took a page out of Liverpool's book, and by took a page out of Liverpool's book, I mean they did the exact opposite of what Liverpool did in that first leg against Real Madrid in the quarterfinal round of this tournament, and they actually did pressure Tony Kroos, and that made a big difference. N'Golo Kante had one of the best games I've seen from him in quite some time, and part of the reason behind that, I think, was that Tuchel allowed Kante to do what Kante is best at doing. And he allowed Kante to go up and pressure the ball and to, to cover ground in midfield, to win the ball, to start counterattacks, even to make some late arriving runs into that front line for Chelsea, which is not something I noticed from him before. If Tony Kroos would get on the ball, Kante would step in pressure or even Christian Pulisic would step in <laughs> pressure or Azpilicueta would step in pressure, regardless of who it was on Chelsea's right side, because Tony Kroos is playing on the left side for Real Madrid. They didn't allow him a ton of time on the ball. And when when Real Madrid's metronome, when their creator, when their deep-lying playmaker isn't really able to do that metronomic work, that creative work, that playmaking work, your team's going to struggle a little bit in possession. And we we saw Real Madrid struggle in possession in this game. They
2: Joe, did indeed. With, they did indeed. I will echo what Ryan said to echo what Joe <laughs> said. And then I will ask Joe, we, we may have already covered this, but I wanted to go back to it. Joe, do you have an idea why, for like that ball for Pulisic over the top that he's able to bring down, it's sort of a... It's like a lofted ball, not quite a moon ball, uh, but it, it is. Sort it was sort a ball. There we go. Yeah. Uh, but it is sort of, I'm assuming, targeted at that back line being a little bit exposed or a little bit disjointed. So they're not keeping an exactly cohesive line. But the reason why I spotlight it is because, I mean, that's literally a thing they did inside the first minute. Jorginho, in the first minute, goes for Pulisic over the top, making a very similar run. And I think there was another time in between where Mason Mount tries to make that run and there's another ball over for him that doesn't quite come off so to me that also says and I'm wondering if maybe that's why Pulisic went and celebrated with a very specific person on the bench if like that was a thing that that person had spotlighted that maybe Madrid in a back three because there was some indication that they would go this way maybe that lack of familiarity and trying to pull them out of position opens up opportunities for the ball over the top do you have any thoughts on that one
3: No, I think that's right. And you, me, and Ryan, we texted a little bit in our group chat earlier trying to figure out who does Christian Pulisic go and and hug after he scores that goal. And I think what we concluded is it's one of Tuchel's assistants that also coached with him at PSG. And so our collective guess is that that assistant coach had created this little piece of Chelsea's game plan, that piece being we're going to pull their center backs down and we're going to run in behind. Because, Taylor, you're right. Pulisic made that run multiple times in the opening stages of this game. Mason Mount made it at least once. Ben Chilwell made it multiple times from left uh, from, from left wing back. Azpilicueta made it multiple times from right wing back. This was a very, uh, very highly emphasized piece of Chelsea's attacking game plan. And, and to be fair to... To Real Madrid, I don't even think this is a case of Zidane making that change to a back three. Because they've done that throughout the La Liga Mm -hmm. season this year. But I don't even think this is a case of the back three just kind of screwing up. I think this is a case of their tactics and their defensive tactics being applied to a number of different formations are, are just risky. And they didn't execute them well in this game. I don't think it was necessarily a tactical breakdown because this is how Real Madrid have defended for quite some time, at least this season. I think it's just a case of Chelsea getting the better of that game plan and getting the better of those moments and having a better game plan. I think I think I, I buy into that about 80%.
2: I will put the other I'll 20% it. On, inex- <laughs> on inexperience because, mm-hmm. again, to credit managing Madrid, I think the two points they made. Number one, this is the 23rd defensive line used by Real Madrid this season, which does indeed mean that this combination had never started a game before this mm-hmm. season. So I, I do think you're probably right that it's a thing they've done and they have some experience with, but also maybe rolling with a, an inexperienced, at least together, backline in this one may cost
1: fair. them a couple times. But yeah, I'm with you overall. I think you're probably right. And to answer the question, gents, of who uh, Pulisic went and hugged on the touchline, it was actually a 45-year-old Christopher Pulisic from the future. This game was directed <laughs> by Christopher Nolan. It was a temporal pincer movement. Um, <laughs> All right, but I wasn't sure a, if that's... we were
2: going Tenet or Looper, but uh, I'll
1: <laughs> take Tenet over Looper. I haven't seen Tenet, but I know how Looper <laughs> sort of plays out, and I don't think we need that for Christian Pulisic. We're a very highbrow show. It was Tenet, Taylor. It was Tenet. <laughs> um, so let's talk about T- Timo, Timo Werner then, who missed, missed another sitter in this one about, um, was it about eight or ten minutes in a pretty golden chance? He looks quite low on confidence, but more so, and not to, Uh, beat my own drum again but I think when he first came to Chelsea Taylor when we were doing the weekend reviews I I, I made a note about his decision making process and I think that's come come to the fore again as well maybe it was his positioning for that goal chance but it's the it's the decisions that he makes Mm -hmm. or doesn't make that I think uh, are a little problematic with that player it's the decision making absolutely because it's like
2: it's the moments when he has time to think I think, as I've said many times, you don't want that when you're the striker. You just want to be able to score instinctively and know exactly what you're doing and play by instinct because you're trusting your angles, you're trusting your sort of muscle memory to know how you need to hit the ball and where you need to place the ball. But when you have time to think, I think he just sort of is like, I'm just going to go put it on frame. And he ends up putting it right to the foot of Thibaut Courtois. So then he tries to make up for it. And now he's trying to get around at a tighter angle and get a shot off when maybe there's a cutback on from Mason Mount. And you can see... Then he's like, well, okay, I'm going to try to drop in. Oh, no, I have to get on the end of this cross. And he can't quite get there. And I think he just keeps being a half second to a second off. It's honestly a problem that Tammy Abraham had when Frank Lampard was in charge of Chelsea, that he seemed to be a half second to a, a half yard consistently Off the pace out of the play. And I don't know how you bridge that gap. And I don't know, as we've talked about before, if Thomas Tuchel is even that concerned about it because maybe he's doing Mm -hmm. the things that he needs to do. I will say, though, that once again, some of the faces that Thomas Tuchel makes when Timo Werner fails to score are hilarious unless you're a Chelsea fan. And specifically, if you're Timo Werner, they're the opposite of hilarious.
1: I think, um, as I've mentioned before on the show, um, Tammy Abraham is one of my brother's neighbors in his you neighborhood. Have. So I might have to send my brother on and give him a little hug because I don't know what he has to do to, uh, <laughs> to get a shot <laughs> in his team. But we'll, we'll soon find out. By the way, I will, I will also add that if uh, Christopher Nolan did direct this game, uh, he does like Sergio Ramos a lot because half the game was showing Sergio Ramos yes. uh, and yeah. his reactions in the stands, it seems. He, he was m- the most <laughs> featured Madrid player on camera, I would argue. But
2: uh, maybe Joe- they've done Inception, Ryan, and this is oh. actually the dream of Madrid losing Sergio Ramos is actually just fully fit and we're all inside of his dream where he thinks he's not fully fit and that's how you get him out of the game and then Madrid can't score last minute winners I think we have really stumbled onto the Christopher Nolan universe
1: Now I think about it, he did have a little spinning top next to him that was throughout the entire game. Now it's it's all troubling. Now it's all troubling. Oh, (laughs) gosh. We figured it out. We figured it out. Um, Joe, on on Real Madrid, it seemed like they were getting quite frustrated in this one. A lot lot more tactical fouls from then than I can remember them doing in recent history. A bit more frustration. I think uh, Zola, Kroos, and Marcelo were all booked for tactical fouls. I can specifically specifically remember uh, Kroos on Kante, just a really cynical one, just just couldn't catch him and just
3: just lunged at him from behind. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a frustrating result for Real Madrid. So I can almost understand, understand where they're coming from. But also at the, at the same time, you really can't afford to allow another away goal. And so tactical fouling certainly does come into play here. It's, it's a, an okay result for Real Madrid looking at it from a little bit more of a big picture standpoint. But man, they certainly would have preferred obviously not to give up any goals in this game. But even a 1-1 draw with some of those tactical fouls puts them in an interesting situation for the second leg. But I, I don't blame, I don't blame a cynical Real Madrid towards the end of this one.
1: And by the way, for the second leg, um Marcelo, if indeed he is selected for this one, he may have to be selected or or maybe not because <laughs> there was a new story that he um he is uh, obliged to attend a local election to work in a polling station. He has to monitor the election uh, to the Madrid Assembly on the 4th of May, which is the day before the second leg. Um, I'm not sure how some seriously to take that story because reading into it, some previous players have been excused uh, in different regions of Spain for similar uh, reasons. So but maybe Marcelo will be uh, wearing his uh, thick rim glasses, the Homer Simpson glasses, and, and you know, ticking, ticking boxes outside of a, a polling station. Who's to say? Who's to say? Maybe he'll be more useful there because... I don't know, he wasn't oh. super useful in this game. <laughs> uh, Ryan, there is mean. an
2: update to that story. Uh, I think several of the people who are running for office have been brought down by off-the-ball incidents and won't <laughs> be able to stand election. So I think Marcelo should be good. I don't know if those two things are uh,
1: linked at all. Oh. Well, it's nice that there's a, a, an election in Madrid where the person isn't running unopposed and they actually do have some kind of a electoral process. That sounds fun, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, funny. and being a poll worker for it, why not? <laughs>
3: All right. I think the other thing I've got on my notes here is that Mason Mount is really good. Uh, yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, Zidane looked like Palpatine from Star Wars on the sideline with his black raincoat <laughs> on his hoodie up as the rain poured down in that first half. Just wanted to get that out there. Not a Christopher Nolan reference, but uh, a movie reference nonetheless.
2: I- I'm convinced, and maybe this is also a Christopher Nolan plot, that like there's only like one Source of, uh, I'll say football for these purposes, like footballing power when it comes to England and a couple players just pass it around. Cause I felt like Phil Foden didn't have the strongest game overall but then he has that one run where it's like oh right he's exceptionally good and I feel like Mason Mount had used so much of the England England footballing power the day before that there was only like two percent left over for Phil (laughs) Foden to use today Uh, because Mason Mount at times looked far and away genuinely far and away the best player on the pitch other times other people but uh, like Mason Mount kept doing things that made Danny Carvajal try to man mark him and try to track them the whole way and when he couldn't there was more cynical fouling, and I, I really did think this was another reminder of just how good he is, uh, and mm. not just because he is twinsies with Christian Pulisic, so there are two of them, and you never know what they're going to do at any time, because they have drift <laughs> and they're compatible.
1: Indeed. Are you saying that in the Euros, England's only going to have one good player on the field, Taylor? Yeah, that's tradition, No near enough Ooh. one's generous sometimes <laughs> um we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see about that and we'll certainly see about how this one shakes out in the uh, second leg it seems like uh people are touting Chelsea to have the uh, the edge here and they certainly do have the away goal so but then again they're playing Real Madrid who do know a thing or two about progressing in this competition I think that's one pre- that one is pretty delicately poised gents when we come back after these short messages we're gonna go conquer calf. woo Total Soccer Show, we are back. Let's talk CONCACAF Champions League. We're at the quarterfinal stage here. We had Atlanta United taking on the Philadelphia Union on Tuesday evening. This was a jolly good romp, wasn't it? Maybe not so much if you're an Atlanta fan. Although, Joe, it seems like Atlanta were actually pretty darn good in this game. I've not, I can't remember a team losing 3-0 being as compelling as they were.
3: Yeah, Gabriel Heinze said after the game, it's a joy to watch my team play. I don't think I've seen a manager say that after a 3-0 loss ever, but he's kind of right. Taylor, I saw you you send a text in our chat about this, and I I felt the same thing watching it last night on, on Tuesday. Atlanta played really pretty soccer in this game. They moved the ball well. It was so fluid. I gave up trying to pin down what formation they're playing because they really weren't playing a set <laughs> formation. That's part of Heinz's philosophy. It's all about spacing and rotating and reading your, your teammates' movements in possession. And that dictates how you move around. So Atlanta dominated the ball. They had the vast majority of possession in this game. They had the vast majority of the chances in the first half. They pressed well in the first half. Note all the first half comments I'm making. Uh, and, and they looked really fun. Taylor, I want to flip it to you here. I, I don't. I don't want to be mean here, but I don't think you've watched quite as much Atlanta as I have. What did you feel like from this game watching Atlanta play? Were you as excited about this as I was? I was excited
2: after I got over my confusion of like, (laughs) that's not where you're supposed to be right back. (laughs) George Bellow, you are a left back. You are not a central midfielder, but also a left winger and occasionally a center forward. uh, Yeah, I think I wasn't prepared. I knew there would be some position swapping and some shifts to overload and create vulnerabilities out wide. I did not know it would be this much where sometimes George Bellow becomes that other holding midfielder. Sometimes Soso drops in and we have a back three with three center backs, but sometimes Ibarra drops in and one of those center backs steps out. Yeah. The the variability of this Atlanta team was fascinating and confusing all at once, which I guess makes it most Christopher Nolan movies. We're continuing the theme here, <laughs> fellas. We're continuing the theme.
1: I'm not sure. um, Well, you could argue that there's some miscommunication in some Nolan films. You don't really know what's going on, and that certainly seemed the case for the second goal, didn't it, with the uh, the (laughs) midfield there?
3: (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Let's it in in again. Really well played from you, Ryan, first of all. It really was just a a couple poor defensive errors from Atlanta United, namely Alan Franco on that second goal, their designated player center back. I'm not aware of any other DP center backs in MLS, and maybe there's been one in the past, but this is one of the only... DP center backs in MLS history. And this is Alan Franco's first game, to be fair to him, coming over from Argentina. Uh, he just now is getting into the lineup, but it's a counterattack for the Union. Leon Flack brings the ball forward. It's a little combination between him and Sergio Santos for the Union. And then Flack breaks in behind, and Alan Franco's the last guy back. And he just decides to go on a weird trip to pressure the ball pretty poorly instead of trying to split the distance between Flack and an on-running Casper Shabilko, the, the Union's primary goal scorer. And uh, it doesn't work for Alan Franco. Flack gets the ball over to Shabilko. Shabilko scores. And then you, the Union are up 2 to nothing at that point. And Atlanta are pretty much done in the tie. And then, and then they go down by another goal later on in this game. And then they're really done unless uh, unless something changes drastically in that second leg. Poor defensive errors from Atlanta in that second half, certainly. And yet somehow all of these goals for Philadelphia managed to come against the run of play. It was truly a baffling game.
1: Well, Philly certainly took their moments, didn't they, Joe? And uh, I think you've mentioned on the notes that you think they might be the leading MLS contender in this competition this season.
3: Yeah, the Union, based off of how they performed, especially in that second half, they were were iced out of the game in the first half. But in the second 45 minutes, they just... They did take advantage of their chances. They got out in transition, and they showed that they can pressure the ball a little bit, that they can defend a little bit deeper if they need to. I think it's between the Union and Columbus, and I don't know how Columbus is going to do in their CCL clash against Monterey. As we're recording, they're they're about to start in that first leg. Columbus could get blown out. They could blow out Monterey. I'd be surprised, but it is possible. It's somewhere between Philly and and Columbus, and of course, now that I've said all this, Portland are going to win the whole thing.
2: But I think, Joe, I, I agree that I think every time I watch this Philly team, I, I like them more. Uh, and, and I think a big part of that is because I have faith in Jim Curtin to figure some things out. I yeah. think he does that in this game where, uh, as I said, in various combinations, Atlanta, I felt like were either in a back two at times when they were in possession high up the field, but more often were comfortable with the back three and that allowed them to push numbers on. And I think Philly were a little bit more reactive to that in the first half. And in the second half, what I saw is Philly keeping three forward and sitting on those three who were staying back for Atlanta, which means they're always going to get nervous. That's like a principle of the way Atlanta are playing or like of the philosophy they have embraced that then they're going to pull somebody back to create an overload to make sure they always have numerical superiority but then you're making Atlanta change up what they want to do to make sure that they have the defensive balance and they can't dictate the game as much. And little adjustments like that, I think, rest control back if you're Philly. And then you kind of uh, like capitalize on the mistakes. It's what, kind of what we talked about with Man City against PSG, that if they're going to... Have a miscommunication and let the ball sort of sit between them, then take it and go to goal and make something happen and find a way to score. Maybe that's the answer to this is that we need Franco to just get a tattoo that says don't let Philly beat you 3-0, <laughs> a la memento, and then he won't forget and it won't happen again.
1: Well, fortunately for you, Taylor, that might that might play out because Alan Franco is actually James Franco. This is a performance art piece. And okay. It's all part of the Nolan universe that he's doing here. It's, it's a long term project. So um, may, maybe that will come to pass. You'll get the tattoo as well. Uh, Joseph Martinez was booked in this one and kept kept being fairly <laughs> um, cavalier up thereafter. He's going to be suspended uh, for the second leg. Uh, Joe, is that is that going to be a problem for for, for Atlanta in the second leg?
3: yeah was it was it joseph martinez that was booked or jose martinez for philadelphia i'm I'm trying to remember back in my no, mind because you're, at this you're point. quite
1: right you're quite right it, I've, I've, yeah
3: that's quite all right i mean that's quite all right they have very similar names and and they actually have some <laughs> similar qualities to them even though they, they even though they play in different spots losing losing Same their martinez too, yeah 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 there's some similarities losing their version of <laughs> of the martinez gentleman uh, is is going to hurt the union because of how how Jose Martinez really does control the bottom of that diamond. I, I will say though, having that three goal lead is going to make that absence a lot less, uh, a lot less challenging for them. But Jose Martinez is a hugely important player for the union in any game that they're without him is a game that they're going to be a little bit worse off.
1: Indeed, mixed up my Martinez's. Won't do that again. Anyway, um, <laughs> if they get through there, uh, it could be Portland Timbers or Club America waiting in the semi-finals. Um, the other game that took place on Tuesday evening was Toronto against Cruz Azul. Uh, a very challenging one. This was for Toronto Cruz Azul, being top of Liga, Liga MX at the moment. So they're on a 16-game unbeaten run going into this one as well. Toronto, meanwhile, having their training interrupted by alligators and such, uh, so <laughs> that that must have been a challenge for them as well. And uh, Taylor, they didn't do so well in this one
2: no they did not <laughs> they uh
1: <laughs> they looked like a team
2: that suddenly remembered their season had just started and some of them were in preseason form and I I actively felt bad for Josie Altador at times we've seen this with a few other players uh Joe who's the forward for Portland is it Yara yeah Yep. yeah like I remember in in, in their game last last round where in like the 33rd minute you could see him like holding oh Mora his to just sorry be like, like Mora it's Mora it's, yeah it's Mora. he was like I did not sign up for this, like for it to be this hot and this humid and us to be playing this competitive of soccer. And I think you could see that with Josie a little bit. uh, And I think you could see that with some of his passes and the way he kind of set up. And certainly with the way he gives the ball away in the lead up to the first goal, I think it's not to say that Josie was the problem. I think there were many problems for Toronto in this one, but a lack of sharpness definitely seemed to be one of them.
1: I mean, playing in Tampa in late April Mm -hmm. when you're used to playing in Canada might be an issue, right?
2: Yeah, I think that's probably part of it. I mean, you could argue that they've been having preseason there, but I think even then, they're staying in a hotel, they're away from their loved ones. It's just a weird situation for all the Canadian teams, Mm -hmm. but in this case, Toronto for sure. And so maybe you're right, then maybe it's too harsh to sort of put that completely on them. But then I guess the question is, why were they so poor at times in this one? So I guess over to Joe for that one. (laughs) Thank you.
3: Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Taylor. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'm not entirely sure I have an answer to why they were poor at everything. I do have an answer to why they were poor in in specific moments and specifically looking at a couple of the goals that they can see later on. Uh, the second goal they give up is uh, a set piece, and the third goal they give up is a set piece. And that trend has continued from the last two MLS games at Toronto FC And played. the disallowed goal as well. I'll add yeah, that one yeah. in yeah. there too. So that's, that's basically mm. three big errors on set pieces. And they've given up, all told, not counting that error, four set piece goals in their last three games. One against Vancouver, one against Nashville, and then two in this one. It's, it's a problem for Toronto, and it's, it's not quite related to this, but it's also similar to the fact that Toronto is just struggling to defend in general right now in open play and on set pieces. The back two, the, the center back pairing for Chris Armas in this game was Omar Gonzalez and Eric Zavaleta those two players don't have the speed or the defensive ability to contain a Cruz Azul team, to contain really a, a high-level league MX team. They were able to do it as a group against Club León in the last round, and that was a hugely impressive result for Toronto to get out of that opening round of CCL. They're not so fortunate this time. They don't have, whether, whether that's a collective defensive work to, to move together and to avoid making any individual defensive mistakes or whether the players in the last round were just just playing better in this game Omar Gonzalez got burned for pace at one point Eric Zavaleta had to uh, commit a yellow card to avoid getting burned in behind Toronto's high line I'm worried about Toronto FC in general and I'm specifically worried about their ability to defend if Chris Armas wants to press at all outside of Chris Mavinga they don't have any center backs who can reliably play a high line and that's a big problem for them
1: yeah, that seemed to be a big problem. That that third goal in particular, the, the set piece defending was, uh, that was that was maybe the worst of them for me, where they had sort of. A line of red shirts, and they were nowhere near the two blue shirts, who one of whom ended up putting it in the back of the net. I think was it Alexi Lalas on comms for this one, Um, who seemed he was like, "Oh come on!" He was very frustrated (laughs) by the time that one went in. He does not
2: like teams not being ready for set pieces. That's a big thing of his. (laughs) And yeah, I don't think Toronto were. I think that their marking was sloppy. I think they kind of almost consistently thought there wasn't going to be a threat because where so many of these free, free kicks were taken. They're not direct shots on goal. They usually require a ball in. But I think the way Cruz has varied their approach, and sometimes it was just a short restart, and they would try to dribble and then play the ball in, which is what they do for the disallowed goal. Sometimes it is one played near. Sometimes it is one played at the back post. It just seemed like Toronto kept trying to guess as opposed to just marking and tracking the way they were supposed to because on that third goal, it's a lot of people not goal side. It's a lot of people not tracking marks. But even I think on the second goal, it's a bunch of players sort of stepping up the wrong time and leaving gaps to then not be able to close them in time. And it's just a weird discombobulation when it comes to the way they're defending set pieces that I, I would venture to guess needs to be resolved if they want to uh, stay in some games this season.
1: I mean, if you are sharing a training field with alligators, maybe that does play on your mind. It does wreck your concentration. Well, you would think then that
2: you're better at defending stuff in the air because you don't want to be on the ground. So you're going to keep the ball up at all times. It makes sense.
1: <laughs> Maybe Sorry, their my logic free kick, is so sound. Their free kick will, <laughs> should just be an alligator rather than the person lying on the floor. Maybe that's a, that would be a very Florida thing to do. I feel like <laughs> you're it pitching would be a Florida Airbud sequel here. Is what I'm
3: hearing. I'm here for it. <laughs> oh,
1: there we go. Uh, Christopher Nolan's <laughs> next movie is confirmed in The, can, the alligator <laughs> yep. that uh, plays soccer. There we go. Quite quite a wild turn for Christopher Nolan that would be. And it's going to Tom Hardy turn. is playing the alligator. By the way, big big signing. <laughs> big signing for them he doesn't have to show his face so it's in keeping toronto fc gonna to need to show their faces certainly in the second leg of this one if they're gonna get something out of it Peter patter get at her figure it out that's my uh advice for the uh, canadians there gents any more on these games or any other games before we head off into
3: the sunset what happened on this show, man? What what happened? We we've been we've been consumed by Christopher Nolan. I have I have two quick thoughts. One from each MLS t- uh, MLS team, not counting Atlanta United. So strike that. I have one thought on Philly. One thought on Toronto. For Philly, with all this uh, Nagelsmann to Bayern Munich, Jesse Marsh to RB Leipzig, the Salzburg's job is going to be open. And from just what I've seen on Twitter, this is no info from me. It does seem like Jim Curtin's name is at least in that conversation, and it, it seems like he's totally deserved. Uh, to be in that conversation, to take over at Salzburg. He has been an exceptional MLS manager over the last couple of years, and even before that, probably. And then Toronto, they're getting a new designated player in Jefferson Soltado, who Paul and Sam talked about on their episode of Allocation Disorder this week. You add in Soltado, you add in Pozuelo. This is going to be a fun team. Note, I did not say good, because I think they're going to struggle to contain teams defensively, but they could score a lot of goals this year and be borderline must-see TV.
2: Joe, since you didn't have one for Atlanta, I have one for Atlanta to ask you, and then we Boom. can call this one a day. Uh, one of my notes for Joseph Martinez from that game, obviously he doesn't score, but is he the player in Major League Soccer? I don't really expect you to have an answer, but like, I can't think of a player who can more quickly transition from first touch to shot or from any touch mm. to shot. I don't know if it's the way Martinez runs. like, He has the the Zidane gate a little bit where his feet are never that far off the ground, and he takes like shorter quicker steps I think but there were a couple different times when he is facing a completely different direction and it's almost one of those video game video game things where you like shoot and your player is facing one way but somehow shoots the opposite like Joseph Martinez can turn in these little tight spaces and still get a shot off really well obviously doesn't score here but it kept being a thing I was noticing so I'm wondering if that's a feature of his game that you have spotted before as well.
3: He kind of has that choppy way of doing almost everything on the field. Choppy running style, choppy shooting style, even on his penalties. It's like that. It reminds me of what you and I talked about yesterday, Taylor, with Busio. And that goal he scored Mm -hmm. against Orlando City over the weekend where Busio just kind of slaps the ball. That's how Joseph Martinez does stuff. I've seen that same thing. And it makes him a a goal threat in situations where you wouldn't think he should be a goal threat. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of why he's been such a dominant player over the last couple years, for sure. Yeah, he good. he He good he good
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. you too good as well you too good as well by the way just thought I'd add that in yeah you're fine Uh, (laughs) fine. (laughs) (laughs) that wraps it up for today Taylor Rockwell thank you very much for your thoughts and your analysis and your Christopher Nolan references thank you buddy for being wonderful and superior and terrific apart from mixing up my Martinez's but hey I'll get over that (laughs) one day Joe Captain America number two no number one number one (laughs) thank you very much Thank
3: you Ryan that is that is truly kind I appreciate it
1: <laughs> bye